Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Five Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. On this week's episode, the major Citrix vulnerability reported on last week's episode was actively exploited within just days. Windows 365 gets enhanced redirection capabilities, and another enterprise management product suffers from a vulnerability which does not require authentication to exploit. For this and more, keep listening to this episode of the podcast, which of course is brought to you by my awesome sponsors. And that includes Netrix Policy Pack, where you use Group Policy, Policy Pack Cloud, or MDM to remove local admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also brought to you by Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud native container management platform for Windows desktops. And of course, also brought to you by Controla end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. Control up. Happy users, happy IT. If you enjoy the show each week, give these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. On last week's episode, I covered reports of multiple newly disclosed vulnerabilities in Citrix ADCs and Citrix gateways, one of which was a remote code execution vulnerability that does not require authentication to exploit. During the last cloud paging user group, I did a session on automating application packaging, during which I covered some metrics related to how frequent application updates have become and the fact that last year, critical vulnerabilities were exploited on average within seven days of their public disclosure. Well, wouldn't you know it, this particular vulnerability was exploited in less than half that average time. This is not all that surprising, given the fact that ADCs and gateways by their nature are sitting exposed to the public. So I'd bet any critical vulnerability, particularly one that does not require authentication and on systems that by their nature are publicly exposed are likely to be latched onto quickly. The US CISA posted an advisory covering the exploits. It is quite lengthy, so I won't go through the specifics on this episode, but the activity included attackers infiltrating networks and planting web shells, which of course could be used for future attacks. So while customers may patch their appliances and assume they are safe, it is possible that attackers have already gone in there with the exploit and planted web shells, which they can then leverage for future attacks. So if you patched and you think you're safe, you may not be. Sorry to be a downer. And speaking of that kind of low-hanging fruit for cyber gangs, you know, enterprise software with critical vulnerabilities um, that are by their nature publicly exposed, well, Ivanti has disclosed an actively exploited vulnerability where attackers can remotely execute the endpoint manager mobile device management software, formerly known as Mobile Iron Cores, API without any authentication. So that's exploiting via the API and calling the API without authentication. Ivanti released security patches for the remote unauthenticated API access vulnerability tracked as CVE-2023-35078 on Sunday. The patches can be installed by upgrading to EPMM version 11.8.11 or 11.9.11 and 11.10.0.2. 
They also target unsupported and end-of-life software versions lower than 11.8.1.0. Some in the InfoSec community have been critical of Avanti's response, as have BleepyComputer.com in the article I've used for reference for this episode. For example, they've derided the fact the security advisory is behind a customer login, so it's not available to everyone. It's only available to customers. So kind of hiding some of that information. There were some other concerns as well. And also, according to a Shodan search shared by cybersecurity consultant Daniel Card, over 2,900 mobile iron user portals are exposed online, with at least three dozen linked to U.S. local and state government agencies. Ouch! <laughs> so this is another critical vulnerability uh, that may really sting. Apple has confirmed a vulnerability patched earlier this month is being exploited, and also a new zero-day vulnerability is being exploited too, with the new one being a kernel flaw tracked as CVE-2023-38606, which affects those running older iOS versions, specifically those on versions prior to iOS 15.7.1. So if you're able to, and you're on those older versions of iOS, update and of course if you're on the most recent version if there's updates available update because there are actively exploited vulnerabilities in both instances the norwegian police are investigating a cyber attack uncovered earlier this month that affected the it systems used by a dozen government ministries the hackers exploited a now patched vulnerability in the platform of one of the government suppliers not giving away too much information on what that was though the government security specialists identified the attack following unusual traffic on the supplier's platform, according to the record media. They've declined to provide more details until the investigation is over. And as a result of the hack, employees of several Norwegian ministries could not access some shared services on their mobile phones, including email, but they could still use work devices without issue, and it's reported the attack did not disrupt the government's operations. The extent of the attack and the group behind it, as of now, is unknown, I guess until they've completed their investigation and share that information. A Norwegian security official said during a press conference that they have implemented a number of measures in response to the attack. And at the risk of this week's episode turning into just a security nightmare episode, another story here. The U.S. CISA has also issued a warning recently about Adobe Cold Fusion server vulnerabilities. This is another example of a vendor possibly fumbling their response as Adobe addressed CVE-2023-29298, which is an access control bypass vulnerability, and CVE-2023-29300, which is a pre-auth remote code execution vulnerability on July 11th, so a couple weeks ago. Uh, but the company also mistakenly alerted customers that CVE-2023-29300, which is the remote code execution vulnerability, was being exploited, but then later retracted that warning. Then two days later, Rapid7 said that it observed attacks chaining the exploits that included that CVE-2023-29300 to deploy web shells on vulnerable cold fusion servers to gain initial access to the backdoor devices. 
So again, web shells raising their ugly head, talked a little bit about them in the Citrix context, but those web shells can be planted to allow future remote access for cyber gangs. Adobe have released emergency security updates to address the newly actively exploited CVE-2023-38205 zero day that was reported on July 19th and warns customers that it was being abused in the wild in limited attacks targeting Adobe Cold Fusion. And this CVE-2023-38205 is different than the first couple that I mentioned, but it is essentially the same vulnerability that was tracked as CVE-2023-29298, but basically because things have kind of morphed, there's a new dedicated CVE to address this. So a really bad week for enterprise security, unfortunately. The Register reported that a security company called Orca flagged a potential security concern with Google Cloud Platform as whenever a GCP project enables the Cloud Build API, a Cloud Build service account is created within the project to carry out builds for that customer. That service account has access to its project's private audit logs, which includes details of the permissions assigned to the project's GCP accounts. That information, which is just details of who can do what, would be useful for an intruder as it would indicate which accounts are worth targeting to get deeper into an organization's infrastructure. The good news here is last month, Google Cloud closed off that route by removing the service account's ability to access the private audit log. So this should no longer be a concern. A little good news on the security front, I guess. Last week, Microsoft SharePoint and OneDrive for Business were interrupted for about 10 minutes after a German TLS certificate was mistakenly added to the main .com domains for the Microsoft 365 services. So, I mean, 10 minutes in the grand scheme of things, considering all the outages, particularly with Outlook in the last few weeks, is pretty minor, but I thought it was interesting that such a mistake occurred. The Register reported on a recent report by Gartner around Oracle's new Java licensing terms, where they say that they expect the per-employee subscription model to be two to five times more expensive than the legacy model. This should not be shocking to anyone who's been listening to the podcast, as it's something that I covered on a previous episode many months ago when the announcement was first made. Uh, what is interesting is that Gartner has also warned that Oracle is ready to test whether users comply with Java licensing terms as it sees them. They say one in five Java users can expect an Oracle audit in the next three years. Speaking to clients since the new model was introduced in January, Gartner said the steep increase in Oracle licensing costs that the majority of Java users would mean that they buy 2026, more than 80% of Java applications will be deployed on third-party Java runtimes, which is up 65% in 2023. Gartner said Java users have six options with regard to the new rules. They could ensure they are running no updates and security patches since January 2019, which is a terrible idea. If they moved applications to Java 17, they could avoid the change, but it would involve significant work and for many would not be viable. Similarly, the option to upgrade all Java applications to the latest release of OpenJDK, GD, OpenJDK is most likely off limits owing to the work that would be involved. 
And in the viable but hard work category come the options of switching to third-party Java products and moving all unlicensed Oracle JDK workloads to Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. Lastly, users could simply bite the bullet and pay for the new Java SE Universal subscription, which would be the easiest option, but obviously very expensive. So it'll be really, really interesting to see how this unfolds going forward. And I mean, even before this, it seems like the footprint of Java in the enterprise, at least, is greatly reducing. And I'm sure this is only going to further that reduction. Windows Auto Patch reporting for feature and quality updates is now generally available. Microsoft have also said users of Windows Auto Patch are free to let them know what they think of the new features and to provide feedback on the product. Microsoft also this week announced that web camera redirection is now possible with Windows 365. So in your Windows 365 Cloud PC session, if you have a local web camera attached to your local device, that should now pass through into your Windows 365 Cloud PC session. I'd imagine this should be a pretty big deal for those who maybe want to use Cloud PCs for the enterprise, as obviously the likes of Teams and Zoom are so important now. AppleInsider.com had an interesting article this week citing Dean Hager of Jamf, who is the outgoing CEO of Jamf, who makes some pretty bold claims that Windows will not dominate enterprise in a decade. And to back this up, he's stating that, you know, it's just a fact that the Windows operating system and ecosystem has been declining for over 20 years. And he says that's not a knock at Windows, it's just a statement of fact. And that in 10 years time, Windows will not be the dominant ecosystem, stating that Apple is coming up because it already dominates the mobile enterprise. He also claims that when he joined Jamf in 2015, he thought some pretty special things were going to happen with Apple in the enterprise, but he said that his predictions would have fallen short to what actually has happened in the last eight years. He goes on to state that users will choose the technology that they want, and this just wasn't true 20 or even 10 years ago. But the world has changed, employees have a choice, and those organizations that don't allow that choice are falling behind. And obviously, the implication here is that the employees want Apple devices. So it was interesting, like this is an appleinsider.com article that I'm referencing and even most of the comments within the actual article on this site that is obviously frequented by Apple fans is full of comments challenging his view. Ars Technica reported on a new ChatGPT feature that allows users to provide custom instructions that the chatbot will consider with every submission. And they say the goal is to prevent users from having to repeat common instructions between chat sessions. The feature asks, what would you like ChatGP to know about you to provide better responses? And some examples are, where are you based? What do you do for work? What are your hobbies and interests? What subjects you can talk about for hours? And what are some goals you have? You, it also asks, how would you like ChatGPT to respond? And some examples or recommendations here is how formal or casual should ChatGPT be? How long or short should responses generally be? How do you want to be addressed? And should ChatGPT have opinions on topics or remain neutral? So the latter one there, I think is probably the most important aspect. You don't want ChatGPT to just spout opinions. If it can't find an answer, then 
That's probably something you'll want to instruct it to do. The feature is currently available in beta for ChatGPT Plus subscription members, but OpenAI says it will extend availability to all users over the coming weeks. As of this writing, as of this recording, the feature is not yet available at all in the UK and EU. OpenAI warns that during the beta, ChatGPT might overlook instructions or apply them in contexts that were not intended. So for now, OpenAI hopes to collect feedback on the feature from users during the beta period. I'd be a little bit concerned that this is also a data scraping exercise for OpenAI. You know, they might get all kinds of interesting insights into what instructions people tend to use uh, based on their persona, geography, and so forth. I guess a word of warning from Justin Holloman on Twitter, who said that he's currently seeing about 30% of his hybrid joint devices failing to escrow BitLocker recovery info into Azure AD. He said that Microsoft support had not been helpful to him and asked if anyone else was seeing this behavior and said that it was happening on some new OS installs as well as older devices that have been previously escrowing fine. And there were some replies to the tweet with other people confirming that they're experiencing the same issue and others have stated that it's on older hardware with TPM version 2 chips. So I guess be warned, I mean, that could be a pretty big deal, especially for new hardware being enrolled or uh, encrypted with BitLocker. You want to make sure that those uh, recovery keys are actually syncing because if something happens to that device and you need to actually uh, unencrypt or put in that key, <laughs> you want that key to be there. And a timely reminder from the awesome Kevin Goodman, who reminded people this week that Amazon Workspace's application manager retires on September 1st. So if you're listening to this and you use Amazon Workspace's application manager, it retires on September 1st. So be sure to check out the AWS advisory on the service and take action. And finally, in the news this week, for anyone who listens to the podcast regularly, you may be aware that I sponsor my local soccer team, Galway United. And the Galway United women's team made history last week, becoming the first All-Island Cup champion. So pretty significant. This is the first year that Galway United's women's team has actually been in existence, and they won the first ever All-Island Cup. So congratulations to Galway United. And best of luck to both the men's and women's team for the remainder of the league season. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. First up this week, Damien Van Robes shared his log analytics dashboard for driver's inventory that allows you to see all drivers installed on your devices. And it's steps that include creating a remediation script, a script that executes on all devices and gets installed drivers and sends the information to log analytics. Next up, the awesome Kevin Kamansky shared his tool called AppFinder, which allows you to easily search for an application and get the necessary information, such as uninstall string, version, publisher, and install location, without having to search in the registry manually. Microsoft's training site had information on how to create and manage background jobs and schedule jobs in Windows PowerShell that might be useful to some. And also, Jeff Hicks shared his Plural Sites course on Windows PowerShell and regular expressions. So if you find regular expressions to be daunting and you want an introduction to maybe adapt and embrace them and make it more understandable, check out this Plural Site session. 
Well, that's it for this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening.